you're dealing with this wonderful thing called music and you are actually feeding off the energy and talent of 100 wonderful musicians in front of you. I cannot describe that feeling. But sometimes when it's at its best, it feels like the flow phenomenon where you become part of something greater, you become part of some kind of energy, current, and you kind of lose the limits of self. It's as close to a religious experience I've ever come to. Today's big interview is with Esa Pekka Salonen, the world-renowned conductor, composer and one-man classical whirlwind. Salonen is the principal conductor of the London Philharmonia, the conductor laureate of the Los Angeles Philharmonic, composer-in-residence at the New York Philharmonic and artist in association at the Finnish National Opera and Ballet. Wouldn't you like his frequent flyer card? Salonen was an untested young buck from Finland when a gap in the schedule allowed him to charm, test and essentially blow the socks off the London Philharmonia, where he's now been for 30 years. His conducting style has been described as like taking a sports car for a burn around twisty alpine roads. His composing style sits in an unusual sweet spot between the avant-garde heroes of his youth to a growing fascination with the high romanticism of Wagner. And fortunately for us, he's a man who talks in epigrams. Esa thank you very much for your time this morning. Um, I wanted to start by asking you what it is to be a conductor. Are you an interpreter? Are you a communicator? Are you a bridge between the, the, the audience and the musicians? There's no simple definition of the role of the conductor. It's not mysterious. It's all sort of based on rational physics. But I like to use a metaphor sometimes of a head waiter. So the composer is the chef. The composer puts it all together in the kitchen. And the head waiter's role and responsibility is to, to make sure that the plate arrives at the table of the customer timely, in a perfect shape, at a perfect temperature, and so on. But we don't deal with the actual content. And I think that's important for everyone to realize because this culture we live in today is so focused on performers and quite often it's completely forgotten that somebody has actually written the material that these people are performing. So there's something between all of those things and I wonder what's it feel like? I mean there's it looks glamorous, you look great on the podium, there is something that you might shy away from this. I have a feeling you might, but there is something theatrical about it necessarily. You're the centre of attention, at least for the orchestra, and so our eyes are on you. What does that feel like being up there? It's very different to being in a studio or on a train scribbling notes for a composition. What does it feel like to be up on that podium with the baton in your hand? It's very hard to describe how it feels, but it's wonderful. There are so many highly unusual and special things happening. First of all, you're dealing with this wonderful thing called music and you're dealing with the great masterpieces by genius composers of the past and, and of the present. So that alone is fabulous. But also there's the, the other element, which is that you are actually feeding off the energy and talent of 100 wonderful musicians in front of you. I cannot describe that feeling. But sometimes when it's at its best, it feels like the flow phenomenon that people speak about, where you become more than just yourself. You become part of something greater. You become part of some kind of energy, 
current and you kind of lose the limits of self and you kind of merge into something else it's very hard to explain but it it's as close to a religious experience i've ever come to and that's actually one of the reasons why i still keep doing this uh, <laughs> because it it's it's also something that you can't just call upon you can't say okay let's have that feeling now it happens or it doesn't and when it happens then everybody can sense it i think the audience becomes part of the energy thing as well and because there is this potential of this thing happening there's nothing that can replace the live concert experience because this you cannot replicate at least with current technology you can't no matter how perfect your vr equipment is and how perfect this resolution is on your screen and so on this thing doesn't happen unless you are there sharing it with other people and kind of feeling each other's energy and there's something of the religious about that there's something of the very natural but also the supernatural about those those sorts of moments you've been with the london philharmonia for 30 years you're turning up and being the conductor for that first performance with some of those musicians was an unexpected thing that turned out to be an unexpected treat. How do you approach new sets of musicians? What sort of dance happens between the two of you in order to gain that trust? Are you conscious of having to do certain things or not having to do certain things, I wonder? At this point in my life and career, I've seen several generations of young musicians joining the orchestras I conduct and and I must say, it's the most fascinating process, how a young player becomes part of the collective and how they learn to play the way the collective plays. And again, I witnessed this many times, and I'm very aware of it. However, I don't quite know how it works. It's some kind of an osmosis, and it, it's certainly a nonverbal kind of exchange of data. A new player comes into into the orchestra. He or she kind of senses the physicality around how people are, if the musician is a string player, how people are using their bows, how they move together, what kind of eye contact they are having, and what kind of sound is coming from around. And of course, he or she learns also how the orchestra relates to the beat of the conductor, what kind of dynamic there is between the conductor and the orchestra. But very little of this is actually being said out loud. It's something you sense. It's like a, you know, some fish have this sensory organ on their sides, which can sense the tiniest differences in the water pressure. And that allows the mackerel to swim in formation, for instance. And we don't quite know who makes the decision when a shoal of mackerel swims in the ocean. They swim in perfect formation. And when a predator turns up, they curl into a ball. And we don't quite know how that decision-making process works. But it's a bit like in a symphony orchestra where you sense your immediate surroundings and you kind of align yourself through that sensor that everybody has what we don't quite know yet what it is. It's the seventh or eighth sense. And I'm sure that this is not metaphysics. It's just something that our physics and biology doesn't yet know, but will soon. And in that shoal of mackerel, are you the head fish or are you the are you the killer whale coming up from the deep <laughs> yeah. frightening them into uh, a ball I, I agree the metaphor has its limits because the <laughs> the, the mackerel don't have the conductor type um, 
and yet they function perfectly well. But the fact about top-level orchestras is also that they have this incredible cohesion and they really have this kind of internal magnets that pull everything together. And an experienced conductor lets them do this without disturbing. And then when the collective works perfectly as one, then you just kind of gently nudge it this way or that way. Not always gently, but and not, not always nudging either. But it's, I guess, this is clearly my morning of metaphors. Now, it's a bit like riding a horse. When there's a hurdle, an inexperienced jockey kind of kicks the heels into the sides of the horse and, and it's unnecessary because the horse knows perfectly well how to jump and when to jump and how to jump over that hurdle. However, what the horse needs is confidence. The horse needs to feel that you are with it, you are supporting the idea of jumping and you won't get in the way. Conducting, when the conductor is experienced enough and good enough, is like that. You just give your players confidence and, and they do it. There's a lot of very friendly, very positive videos and podcasts and many people obviously have spoken about your work as a composer and as a conductor. One of your soloists, maybe, or certainly one of the musicians in the Philharmonia said that she thought that you thought that their orchestra, their set of musicians was like a fast car and you were driving it aggressively around some mountain bends to see what the car would do. How much truth in there is that as we're in the morning of metaphors? Yeah, I have to make a confession first which is that I'm a crap driver um, <laughs> in real life. Um, That's not very finished uh, of you. And cars and me don't work well together. However, of course, part of the fun of conducting, a big part of it is actually to to have that luxury car or the sports car, you know, the Aston Martin or McLaren. And you know that it can do almost anything. And you also know that it can drive off the cliff quite easily. So you have to know to some degree what you're doing. As a personality type, I enjoy being in the sort of risk zone, close to the edge, but not too close. Because I, inhabiting that part of the world is, I find, very stimulating. Where you are still in control, but barely. I guess I'm a typical thrill seeker in this way. Adrenaline junkie, whatever the colloquial is. But that's the fun part. One of many, actually. Does that bear itself out in composition as well? Do you want to include everything are you good at editing out excess in, in in your own in your own work i'm not a vastly different person when I, when i write music okay it's a very different kind of activity it's slow and it's lonely and whereas conducting is public intensely social and filled with adrenaline and you know people are actually clapping when you turn up at work which doesn't <laughs> helps. doesn't happen in in composer's life a friend of mine was actually suggesting that she make a little robot that claps whenever I enter my studio. <laughs> and then there would be a little uh, sound loop of applause and people <laughs> shouting bravo. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we, we all could use that kind of thing. Even when I write music, I like to push people into a zone which is not maybe their comfort zone because the energy also happens quite often right there right at that border, or maybe slightly beyond it. It's not an artistic goal, per se, but sometimes if I'm after a particular kind of expression, particular kind of excitement, particular kind of physicality, which is very important to me in music, I 
consciously write something which is really difficult and demanding in the sheer physical sense of the word. I like the concept of virtuosity anyway. For me, the virtuosos are like great explorers, like Scott and Amundsen, who went to the South Pole and didn't quite come back. But they, they went there and they did it so that we don't have to. They ate uh, a lot of mackerel as well. Oh, boy. Krill. <laughs> a lot of protein. But that's the idea, that when we observe a virtuoso at work or a virtuoso orchestra or soloist or something like that in the concert hall, we can kind of live that danger and that adrenaline. There is a moment in... Now I'm going to start talking about Nietzsche. So this morning is kind of spent. But anyway, <laughs> so there's a... We can do this, we can do this <laughs> thing as, as a series, if you like. <laughs> right. so, so there is a, a chapter in Also Spracht Zarathustra where a tightrope walker falls and injures himself and is dying... And Zarathustra goes to him and says, well, you know what, that's fine. You made a choice. You made danger your profession and we are grateful and you've done a great job and you, it's okay if you, if you hurt yourself and die. And somehow tightrope walkers are the greatest artists because they can make a mistake only once. That was the wisdom by Nietzsche. It doesn't quite have to be like that, but I, I like the idea of danger <laughs> in classical music, which is not much talked about, but the fact that people sometimes have to do incredibly difficult demanding things where the absolute focus is needed and years of practice and training and then they do it and it's very exciting. What happens when two virtuosi meet each other? You, you've you worked and you've written for Yo-Yo Ma. Does it feel different to write for for someone specifically as to without your applause machine, sit down and be confronted with an empty page? Is it, is it a less empty page when you're doing it specifically for one performer, I wonder? I find it very difficult, actually, to write music generally without knowing who is going to play it or which orchestra is going to perform it, who is going to conduct it. I like the more personal connection. And with people whom I have known for a very long time, it becomes extra fascinating because I quite often think, OK, I'll take that person a little bit outside her or his comfort zone and see what happens. And of course, these people like Yoyo and many of the other people I've written for are incredibly <laughs> virtuosic, skilled, talented people. So it takes a lot to push them. They've got quite a big comfort zone. <laughs> yeah, I, it's very hard to push them on the edge. But, but in some cases, something extraordinary happens, at least in my view, when somebody who is usually just completely on top of everything is actually facing something which is almost impossible. And and I like that excitement that comes out of that moment of extraordinary focus. I don't like torture. <laughs> don't get me wrong. And, I, and this is not a power thing. It's It has nothing to do with it. If, if I were interested in power, I wouldn't be dealing with classical music. This is just like toy power in comparison to real power. But I like that sort of dynamic, that a composer is not someone who thinks in the abstract. Composer is somebody who writes for people to perform for people. So that there's the, the human communication element always. I wonder if the the fact that a lot of the canon is was obviously written in the past, does that make it abstract? 
we listening to the music as notes we listen to the music as a huge welling emotional storytelling thing but there is an abstraction to it because it is old does that make any difference i wonder it doesn't actually because if you think of other fields theater especially texts written by not only shakespeare but the greeks sophocles and so on they are totally current they just need a little bit of updating and sometimes not even that same thing with Composers like Bach and Beethoven, uh, Mozart. Okay, the style and the technique and the the tools of expression are time typical. So how Sibelius ex- expresses himself has to do with the cultural and political situation in Northern Europe and more specifically in Finland around 1900. However, what the music is about is completely contemporary and timeless, i.e. us, how we feel, what is important, you know, the big themes, love, death, hatred, excitement, sex, like very fundamental human aspects to the human life and psyche. So that doesn't change. And I wonder about your your taste. Has it changed from when you were... Uh student and when you're a, a young man a younger man Esapaka <laughs> I read something you wrote about trying to escape the sort of idea of the bourgeois composer and the people that maybe enjoyed that music and having an affinity with a kind of cut glass modernism and avant-gardism has that changed is mellowed the right word I think it's almost like a, a biological progression that when you're young you have to kill your fathers and you have to question everything the previous generation and the previous generations ever achieved and thought. So I went through that quite radically, I must say. I hated everything, and I thought we should dismantle all cultural structures, opera houses, symphony orchestras, theatres, and build new ones out of those bits and pieces. So how did the Finnish culture deal with a rabulist like myself? They gave me a three-year artist scholarship, which kind of shut me up. I thought, okay, daddy's taking care of me. (laughs) (laughs) But I think this is normal. I think everyone goes through this on some level. It must be a biological thing also, that you have to question some of the decisions and norms of your predecessors in order for the species to live on and, and prosper. When I think about where we are today globally speaking. I mean, my generation really has failed, and I feel very ashamed. We haven't been able to solve one single major problem. So the natural reaction by the younger generation would be to completely disagree with my generation. I don't know. It, it's it's a painful subject. Are you attracted to performing and interpreting composers that you feel some affinity with Stravinsky and Wagner and people that have gone through a transformation or many transformations themselves? That keeps changing a little bit. When I was younger, I I was very suspicious of Wagner, extremely so. And that was not based on proper analysis of why I was so suspicious, because I thought he was a Nazi. But of course, I my thinking wasn't clear, because of, of course his music was used by the Nazis as the sort of ur-German 
expression. But it was, wasn't, strictly speaking, Wagner's fault, because he was long gone before the Nazi propaganda machine started working. So I totally revised my opinion of Wagner, and I had this experience. It's funny how it happens. We're talking 2003 or four. I got a phone call from the head of the Paris Opera, the late, great Gérard Mortier, and he said, I think it's time for you to conduct Tristan and Isolde in your life. And I said, what are you talking about? Wagner, you mean Wagner? He said, yeah, yeah, it's time. So I started looking at it and I thought, yeah, it is time. And then we went to Bill Viola, the, the video artist, and we had lunch with him. And, and I said, so Bill, would you do a video for Tristan and Isolde? And he said, what, what are you talking about? Wagner, that old, dead, white German Nazi. I said, yeah, that's the guy. <laughs> um, so something happened. We, and it was interesting because we, all three of us, we were at the same kind of junction in life where this material all of a sudden started to make sense. And more than that, I was actually changed <laughs> profoundly. Wagner's music has started to be like a drug. I find it very hard to live without it. And I'm thinking about it constantly. And so it's a very, very long stretch from my young days when I just dismissed him. Okay, piece of shit. That's it. End of story. And now it's very different. <laughs> and next year, the ring cycle in Finland. Yes. No small undertaking. That's full. That's forgive the pun full circle from how you were before with Wagner. I thought since the last five years, I've been thinking if I like to see myself as some kind of a performer, conductor, I have to do the ring before it's too late. And I don't want to be lying on my deathbed being deeply unhappy about the fact that I never conducted the ring. So I thought, okay, now now I'll do it uh, while I still can. And it's nice to do it in Finland with my my people and speaking my language and and hanging out with my friends. How is it doing doing things in different locations? Your diary is a none more busy one. Asia and and obviously your work in Los Angeles, in London, all over the world. Do, do things sound different to you in different places? Do you know how they're going to sound? Or is that part of the challenge to get that concert hall or that sound, the sound in your head to ring out in an auditorium? The result, even in the best case scenarios, is always a compromise between the local acoustics, the local orchestra, however good, and my own thoughts and ideas and ideals about what, what I should be hearing. But by and large, I don't have to compromise much. And sometimes, I mean, it's never a one-way street either. And sometimes an orchestra or an individual player in the orchestra gives me an impulse, some kind of a an idea that is, strictly speaking, not within my concept. But I hear it, and I feel that impulse. And sometimes I take it and run with it, because I like it better than my concept. And that's also maybe more difficult for a young conductor, because young conductors are quite often, at least I used to be, very sort of protective of their own concept and their integrity and so on. Prestige is the least important thing in my life. So I, I don't care about that at all. If I hear something that I like better than what I had been thinking about, 
I'll take it happily. And then, you know, things evolve from there. I guess the beauty is that these concepts of interpretation, I actually don't like the, the word interpretation because it sounds a bit pompous. Concept is better. It's more neutral. So the concept is a dynamic thing. It's not cast in iron and nothing is ever final, which is also a great consolation in this crazy schedule of mine and the crazy world of ours, that things are always developing like a garden or a forest. It's the forest, it's the garden, but the details change and the dynamic within changes all the time. And just finally, I'd like to go back to way back earlier. And I wonder if there was, I've got an image in my head somehow of you listening to some very fine Finnish public broadcasting and hearing something for the first time on the radio. Is there such a thing in your memory as the the first thing that got you into the life that you now lead? I had a few of those moments. I came home from school, I was maybe nine years old. And my dad had bought his first ever stereo system the day before, and he hadn't actually set it up properly yet, so the loudspeakers were on the floor and the amplifier was also on the floor. So I came home from school and I turned it on just randomly and the classical music channel was on and the Tannoy was playing Bruckner Fourth Symphony. Not exactly a children's favourite. No, but I and I was sort of vaguely aware of classical music at that point. Not terribly interested. I was more into pop and rock and ice hockey and poetry. I, I read poetry since, since I was very little. That was a little hard to defend among the other little boys in, in my suburb. But um, anyway, so I heard this symphony f- from like halfway till the end and it completely mesmerized me. I remember the tactile feeling very well. I was lying on a carpet in the living room and I remember the color of the carpet. And I remember how it felt to lie on it and hear that symphony. And once it was over, I waited until I heard what it was and then I went to my mum and I said, look, I want an LP of this. That's all I want. And she was a bit sort of, oh, really? Bruckner Fourth Symphony? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. So she went and bought it. I still have that LP and I tried playing it last year. And, and it's only, only scratches because I played it so much that it's almost, there's more noise than music. But that was one of the initial strong impulses. And I thought, this thing called classical music is is really powerful and cool. When I deal with this material, either writing it or conducting it, I'm just grateful. And at this point in my life, I also realize how much is about sheer luck and fluke and so on. You have to have the right impulse at the right time and you have to have the opportunity to learn and to study. You have to have the teachers and you have to have a community that can support you, which makes me, first of all, feel very, very lucky and privileged and also makes me feel very sad about the fact that as the music and arts part in most countries in public schools, I mean state schools in this country, I guess, how the resources have been decimated, how little there is left for especially poorer kids, this makes me very sad because just think how many Mozarts 
might be they're growing up in some challenged part of central LA or some challenged part of London, but that incredible potential talent will never see the light of day. So that is something that I've been thinking a lot about. And my remaining active years in this business, I'm trying to go more into education, giving back to the system that has been so very good to me. Asa Pekasalan, and thank you very much indeed. Thank you. My thanks to Esther Pekko-Salonen, who, of course, is on tour, conducting his own work and that of Haydn, Strauss and Mozart. Next year, Salonen takes Wagner's ring cycle to Finland, a day or days of reckoning. The Big Interview is produced by Julian Goffin and edited by Cassie Galpin. And I've been Robert Bounds, and thank you very much for tuning in. <laughs>